You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, Let's pray before we look at God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us now as we look at your word. Uh, In particular, that you would help us to see exactly why Jesus came into this world. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you would summarise the Christmas message. Or put differently, uh, what would be your summary of exactly why Jesus came into the world? Maybe you think Jesus came into the world to be a religious prophet or a moral teacher or a miraculous healer. And maybe to be a, a social revolutionary, a kind of political reformer of some kind. Right, I wonder what your summary would be of why Jesus came into the world. Now, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 is an example of one such summary. I encourage you to look it up, actually, uh, maybe on the welcome card or perhaps in your own Bible if you've got one. Uh, Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Right here is a trustworthy saying, Paul says. These words were probably a summary statement that people in the early church would have memorized and repeated to one another. By reminding one another that this is a trustworthy summary, or a reliable and dependable summary of exactly why Jesus came into the world. Right? This is a statement, Paul, saying that you can build your life on. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So this Christmas, well, we're kind of going to interrogate the nine words of this summary statement using the questions who, what, why, and how. So first of all, let's consider this statement through the lens of the question, who is Jesus? Paul says Jesus is Christ Jesus. Of course, lots of of people think that Jesus Christ is just Jesus' first and last name. You know, if you look up a phone book from Bethlehem in the first century, you'd be looking for first name Jesus, last name Christ. Other people seem to think that the Jesus Christ is just something that you say well, when someone cuts in front of you on the freeway. You let them have it. Oh, but actually, the word Christ is a title. It's saying that Jesus is God's chosen and promised and anointed king, a king who was long expected amongst the Jewish people. Psalm 118 verse 26, for example, says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whether this is a prophecy of the coming of God's King, God's Christ, or the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And maybe it sounds a little bit familiar to you. Because when Jesus entered Jerusalem just before he uh, before his death, right in Luke chapter 22, verse 38, for example, uh, the Jewish crowds cried out to Jesus, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Whether the Jewish crowds who'd long been expecting God to send his king recognized that Jesus was that king. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Well, and it wasn't just other people who said that Jesus was the, God, uh, was the Christ. Right? Jesus himself said it. 
in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 that there's another prophecy about the coming of God's king. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. For centuries, the Jewish people read and listened to this prophecy from Isaiah, wondering who is it that who is this prophecy speaking about? Well, who's going to fulfil this prophecy? Well, in Luke chapter four, Jesus was in Nazareth, right where he'd grown up, and on one particular Sabbath, he went into the local synagogue, as was his kind of typical practice. And in Luke 4, verses 16 and 17, Luke tells us that Jesus stood up in the synagogue to do a reading, and someone handed him the the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And now we should remember uh, that Isaiah is a really big book. You know, there's 66 chapters. So it's a very, very long scroll. And Luke tells us that Jesus unrolled that, that massive scroll all the way to Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, until we find, found the place uh, where it said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Uh, after Jesus read those words, he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. And then when the eyes of everyone were fixed on him, he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But who is this prophecy about? Who is going to fulfill this prophecy? Jesus says, It's me. Jesus says, I am the Christ. I am God's chosen and promised and anointed king who's come to create the world that all of you long for, Jesus says. And we get a taste of that world uh, throughout Jesus' ministry. It's a world in which the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the paralyzed can walk and the hungry are fed and the captives are freed and the poor are cared for and the sick are healed and the marginalized are included. It's an absolutely wonderful world. And notice that when Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, he stops short of that sentence which speaks about the day of God's vengeance, the day of God's judgment. Why does he stop short? It's not because Jesus doesn't believe that God will judge. Jesus knows that at his second coming, he will personally kind of bring about God's judgment. But for now, in his first coming, Jesus knows that he's bringing about the day of God's favour. God's grace, God's blessing. This is the time, Jesus is saying, where when there's a chance to trust in me as God's king and experience all the blessings of being a part of his kingdom. But who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. But of course, we mustn't forget that Jesus is also Jesus, right? Maybe you think that's a bit strange, but but, uh, actually the the name Jesus is the kind of Greek transliteration of of the Hebrew name Yeshua. It's where we get our name Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. That's why in Luke 2 verse 11, when Jesus uh, is born, the angels say to the shepherds, Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. 
Uh, in Matthew 1, verse 21, the, the, the passage that Chantel read from earlier, uh, the angel says to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Right? Why? Because, God says, he will save his people from their sins. Right? Who is Jesus? Uh, he is Christ the King and he is Jesus the Saviour. That's the first question. Who is Jesus? Second question, what did Jesus do? Or more specifically, what did Jesus do at Christmas? Oh, look what Paul says. He says, he came into the world. Literally, he came into this cosmos in which we all live. So even though this phrase does tell us what Jesus did at Christmas, it also tells us a whole lot more about who Jesus is. Because it tells us that, yes, Jesus' human life began in that manger in Bethlehem, but, but that wasn't the beginning of his existence. Sometimes my kids uh, ask me, Dad, uh, where was I before I was born? That big question. I say, well, you, you were in mummy's womb. And they might come again and say, well, what about before that? And I say, oh, well, actually, you weren't anywhere before that. Well, you didn't exist. My mind blown for them. Right? But Jesus is different, isn't he? Right? But because before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was the eternal son of God. Right? The son of God who enjoyed perfect loving community with his father and with the spirit outside this cosmos, this world, but right? existing in the spiritual realm. So at Christmas, the claim of Christians is that the eternal Son of God, the one who had always existed, enters into this world. Now you might say that that's just ridiculous. Right? In part because Jesus would never have thought of himself as God. Right? That's just something the church kind of imposed on Jesus later on to get a whole lot of money and power. Right? But that's not true. In John 8, verse 51, Jesus claimed that whoever obeys his word will never taste death, but they'll have eternal life. In response, the Jewish leaders said to Jesus, who do you think you are? You know, Abraham and all the prophets died, so how can you say that whoever obeys your word will live forever? Are you somehow greater than Abraham, they ask? And Jesus says, well, yes, I am. <laughs> In fact, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of even seeing my coming. But you're not even 50 years old, they say. How do you know Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Uh, of course, in using those words, I am, Jesus is applying the name to himself that God gave to himself in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. Right? Jesus is saying, yes, of course, I, I was born less than 50 years ago. I took on human form then, right? but, but I've always existed. Right? I am the ever-living God, the self-existent God, the eternal Son. Of God. You might say, well, you're just reading that into the text. Right? It's not really how it, what's meant by it. Oh, no. Right? The Jewish religious leaders knew that, knew that that was exactly what Jesus was claiming. Right? They picked up stones to, to, to kill Jesus. 
Because God's law said that someone who made the blasphemous claim to be God should be put to death. But unless, of course, the claim is true, right? In which case they should be worshipped. But this is the mind-blowing claim of what Christians say happened at Christmas. Like that the creator came into his creation. The eternal came into the temporal. The supernatural came into the natural. Hey, you might say that's crazy. right? This world is all there is. And of course, I understand that that's the dominant message of our culture. Right? Our culture tells us that there's nothing outside this world that you can see and touch and taste. Right? So the best thing we can do is do all we possibly can to, to make this world as good as it can be. Right, but having said that, I think deep down all of us have got a kind of inkling, right, an intuitive assumption, if you like, that we were made for something more than this world. Right, that's why uh, even at the funerals of the most hardened atheists, uh, the underlying assumption seems to be that the, the person continues to exist in another place, right, in a better place. And the events of Christmas tell us that our intuitive assumption is right. Like this world is not all there is because Christ Jesus came into this world at Christmas. Right? Who is Jesus? He is Christ Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He came into the world. And third, why did Jesus do that? Well, Paul says he did it to save sinners. Uh, we should remember that before Paul became a Christian, uh, his background was as a Pharisee. You know, he was a very strict, if not downright legalistic, Jewish leader. Uh, so in Paul's mind, the uh, sinners uh, were people who just uh, made a habit of breaking God's law. Right? People who just didn't follow God's rules well enough, or who didn't meet God's standards. Uh, so Paul previously well, would have thought of sinners as being kind of those people over there. The people he was pointing his finger at in judgment, particularly the Gentiles, right, the non-Jewish people. But here you, you'll see that it's different. Right? You'll notice that Paul puts himself in the camp of sinners. In fact, he says he's the worst of sinners. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, it's hard to be totally sure, right? But because from one perspective. Paul would have seemed to be a very, very good person, you know, always following God's rules. But it seems that as Paul looked back on his life before becoming a Christian, he now can see that there was something really ugly about it. Well, it's not that he was really kind of rebellious, you know, proudly shaking his fist at God. It's that he was really self-righteous, right, proudly looking down his nose at others. I think I'm not sure about this, Robert, but I suspect that when Paul became a Christian, he was really quite affected by uh, Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. Uh, in Luke 18 verse 9, uh, Luke, uh, Luke says, uh, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So we get that, right? Jesus is telling this parable to people just like Paul. Right, people who are confident of their own righteousness. Right, people who are in the habit of putting themselves in the good box and putting other people in the bad box. 
Uh, so Jesus tells a story about a, a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. Uh, the Pharisee prays to God saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other people. Uh, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Like this Pharisee is a very, very good person. Well, at least he thinks he is. And meanwhile, the, the tax collector simply prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And maybe shockingly, Jesus says, it's the tax collector who goes home right with God, not the Pharisee. You see, Paul would have heard this parable, and I reckon it helped him to, to understand that, that before becoming a Christian, it wasn't his badness that kept him away from God. It was his self-righteous conviction of his goodness. Because the truth is, you can reject God either by rebelliously breaking all the rules or by religiously keeping all the rules. I say that rules rather than God's rules because I don't think this proud self-righteousness is kind of limited to those who would identify as religious. Of course, there are lots of religious people in the church who do think like this. Right? They kind of give lip service to the idea that they're sinners, but then it's very clear that they essentially think they're better than everyone else. Whether they spend their lives pointing their finger at other people, always looking down their nose at other people, and this kind of proud self-righteousness just, just oozes out of them. Like Paul before he became a Christian, these self-righteous religious people are seen to dedicate their lives to attacking or even trying to eliminate anyone who they think doesn't follow the rules well enough. But the truth is, I know many completely secular people, unreligious people, who really aren't much better than that. They've got their own set of rules, perhaps, about certain social or cultural or political issues, and they almost legalistically keep those rules themselves while also looking down their noses at other people who don't do a good enough job of keeping those rules. Right? Like their religious counterparts, they dedicate their lives to attacking or even eliminating anyone who doesn't follow their rules well enough. Now, of course, my hope in saying this is not that we'd all get busy pointing our fingers at one another, right? that would kind of defeat the purpose. What my hope is that we would all humbly accept that, that all of us are sinners, if we're honest. Right? Because if nothing else, like Paul, we've all got a bit of this ugly self-righteousness in us. So it's at that point where when you accept that you're a sinner, that the story of Christmas becomes good news. Because it tells you that Jesus came into the world to save people like us. To save us. Right? Not to judge us. I mean, imagine if you were drowning and I just came by and said to you, You idiot! You know, what are you doing? You can't even swim. You, you kind of deserve to drown. But that's not Jesus. Right? Jesus didn't come into the world to judge us, but to save us. He didn't come into the world to, to be our coach either. Like if you were drowning and I just kind of said to you, just try a bit harder, you know, do a bit better, swim a bit stronger. 
Right? That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't some sort of spiritual coach who stands on the sidelines of your life giving you a pep talk. No, at Christmas we remember that Jesus sees this world kind of drowning in the depths of our sin and mess and brokenness. Whether it be by rebelliously breaking all the rules or religiously keeping all the rules, he sees us in our mess and he dives right in to save us, right? to rescue us. Now, that's what Jesus did. How did Jesus do it? How exactly does Jesus save sinners? Oh, well, just a few verses later, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Right? This is how Jesus saves us. He gives his life as a ransom for us. Of course, if we use this word ransom today, it's it's probably in some sort of hostage situation, right? Someone's maybe being held captive by kidnappers, for example, and uh, the kidnappers are demanding that other people pay a ransom to set them free. And that gives us a little bit of insight into how Jesus saves people, right? Because spiritually speaking, uh, the reality is that all of us are being held captive by sin. You might find that shocking, but what I mean by that is that as hard as we might try, we just can't stop sinning, where we can't throw off the chains of sin. If you disagree, well, we'll just try it. But even for one day, try not doing anything wrong. But oh, I don't think we can do it. Well, we're all being held captive by sin. And given that our sin cuts us off from God, the source of all life, the ransom that sin demands for our freedom is death. And that's where the wonderful news of Christmas comes in. Right? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to pay that ransom for us. Right? That's how he saves us. See, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem so that one day he could be crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. It's this message of Christmas that points us towards the wonderful gift of salvation. A message about a gift that Paul says deserves full acceptance. Full acceptance. I see, I could show you this gift. I could show you this gift and say, this gift is for you. You know, I thought of you, I bought this gift for you, I wrapped it for you, and now I'm offering it to you. But because I love you. I could say all that to you, but in the end, you do actually have to accept the gift, don't you? But if you just say, well, it's nice that you thought of me, but I don't see the relevance of that gift. Or it's nice that you bought it for me, but I don't see the need for that gift. Or it's nice that you're offering it to me, but to be honest, I'm someone who really prefers to earn things rather than receiving things. If you say that to me, I'll just say, well, okay, I'm disappointed because I thought of you and bought this gift for you and all of that. But, but, well, the gift, it's just going to sit over here, kind of with your name on it. In a similar way today, Christ is offering you this wonderful gift of salvation. He thought of you before he came into the world. He bought it for you when he gave his life for you on the cross. And today, through my words, it's like he's wrapped it up and he's offering it to you, right? But because he loves you. 
I said, don't, don't just let it sit here because you think it's somehow irrelevant or you don't need it or you prefer to earn things rather than receive things. Right? Accept this gift today. But how do you do that? You do it by believing. By believing that a trustworthy summary of the Christmas message is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? Sinners just like you and me. Please pray with me. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, We thank you for what it tells us uh, about why Jesus came into the world, uh, that he came into the world to save sinners, sinners uh, like all of us. Uh, We pray that you would help us to understand uh, this and to trust in it uh, this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas, everyone.